0: Everyone, you're listening to America's homegrown veggie show. My name is Kate Copsey, and I am the host of the show. You can contact me from my webpage, katecopsey.com, or through America's web radio station site. Today's show is sponsored by Bonnie Plants. Thank you to them. And this morning, we are going to talk with Charlie Nardozzi about growing vegetables in the Northeast and putting them into the landscape. Good morning, Charlie.
1: Good morning, Kate.
0: Yes, and you are based in Vermont, which is a beautiful state, but shall we say it's rather cool climate-wise. So have you always been growing in that area?
1: Well, I, I grew up in Connecticut and I've lived most of my life in New England. So yes, I'm very familiar with the New England climate and the vagaries of the weather and the soils and all the different things you can grow here.
0: Oh, wonderful. Um, so how would you characterize the area as regards gardening? Um, I guess you the soil types go from sandy all the way up to rocky types.
1: Yeah, there's a, quite a variability in soil types here. Uh, if you're certainly along the coast, the, the Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, or Maine coast, uh, you're going to be dealing with uh, kind of sandy soils with a lot of salt spray coming off the ocean, that kind of environment. The, the nice thing about that, of course, is that the ocean moderates the temperatures, so you can, you're can able to grow things there, especially perennials, that you would not be able to grow further inland. But as you go inland into New England and the northeast, uh, the best soils always traditionally have been in the river valleys, the Connecticut River Valley, the Catonic River Valley, a number of different rivers flowing through this region. And uh, when you look at the geography and where people would farm, that's where they would start is along those river valleys. River bottom, nice, rich, silty river bottom soil. Um, but then, of course, uh, New Englanders are known for being very independent-minded, and they tend to kind of spread out onto the hillsides too. And that's where you'll get uh, those clay soils a lot of times, or those rocky, gravelly soils with forest soils, which may or may not be very fertile. Uh, especially if you're getting more of the clay soils, uh, they grow, as we say up here, a very good grass, but not probably the easiest thing to grow vegetables and fruits in.
0: And, and I think that's why um, a lot of people resort to raised beds because of the, the subsoil. Um, and raised beds, I think I heard somebody comment that there isn't a soil condition that a raised bed can't cure. Uh, and would you agree with
1: that? Sure, yeah, because you are really bringing in the best soil that you can possibly find to fill that raised bed. So it could be a combination of topsoil and compost uh, so you've got a, a perfect medium to grow pretty much any plant uh, that you need. And if you're growing specialty plants that maybe need a lower pH or maybe uh, certain nutrients or a uh, certain kind of soil, you can amend it in in that way so you can get the right quality soil for the plant you're growing.
0: Yes, and of course they are so easy to maintain and, and they heat up just that little bit quicker i think than some of the particularly the the wet clay soils um which we had in the midwest uh, now now we're on sand which is kind of a totally different beast um but uh, so i'm down to raise beds in both places and it seems to work out really well um because you can amend on a, a bed by bed like all the blueberries are in one bed and uh, the strawberries in another bed so you can adjust ph as well bed by bed which um, i think think is helpful for the plants
1: Yes, it does. It really helps out the plants. Uh, they grow much better. It warms up faster, drains water quicker in the spring, so you can get on those beds really soon. Plant those early crops of radishes and spinach and peas uh, when other people who are gardening right in the, the flat soil uh, maybe are struggling to get the soil to dry out fast enough or warm up quick enough so they can get some good germination.
0: Yeah, but even so, I think this year, um, everything has been so cold. Um, uh, In fact, just, uh, I think it was the last week in March, I was down at a community garden, and the soil there, even in the raised beds, was still frozen. Uh, not really heavily frozen, but crystallized, and you still couldn't work with it, even in a raised bed, which is considerably yes, later. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it's, it's been a really brutal March. Uh, I know here in Vermont it was the second coldest March on record, going back to 1916. So uh, the lake where I'm close to is uh, Lake Champlain, which has not frozen over in, oh, many years, five to ten years, I would say. Uh, usually it doesn't get that cold in the winter any longer. It will freeze all the way across. This year it was frozen across for a good month. Um, you can go drive your car on it. It was that thick.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure that I trust it that much.
1: But <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, how would you um, maybe characterize it as regards um, may- maybe gardening, as far as when you can generally start and when the snow f- uh, flies again in the fall? Kind of making it rather a short season, right?
1: Yes, it does make it a short season. So unless you do some kind of season extending, either in the spring or the fall, uh, you really need to kind of be clever about ways to get the right crops in the, in the garden at the right time so that they're going to maximize their production and you can get the most out of your garden uh, during our short growing season. So often we talked about raised beds already, you know, using techniques such as those that will warm up the soil a little bit faster. I know with some of the warm season crops, I'm often resorting to putting uh, plastic mulches down, even though I don't really like the look of them so much. Uh, they are very effective in in heating up the soil for those warm-season crops that really want to get into the ground and and get growing as fast as they can. Uh, But it really does start with choosing the right crop for the right season. And this time of year, uh, depending upon your raised beds and where you are in this region in the northeast, uh, you certainly could be planting things like uh, spinaches and kales and some of the radishes and maybe even peas if you have a a fairly well-drained soil and uh, getting those to germinate really quickly so you can have a nice crop out of them and by starting early it offers you the opportunity to do what we call succession planting so you'll have your early crops that'll start in in say april they'll grow through may maybe harvest them in june or even in may depending on what you're growing Uh, Then you have time still to put in a warm-season crop. Uh, You can put your tomatoes in or peppers or even uh, some of the crops that will be harvested uh, into the fall like um, carrots and beets and and crops of that nature or even a crop of beans. And then when those are done in the fall, you can still have time in September to do a, a late crop of kale or a late crop of spinach. So you can actually get three crops from your one bed or one raised bed in one season so you maximize that production without having to resort to having a lot of greenhouses and cold frames around just by kind of being smart about what plants you're growing.
0: Yes. And I, and I think, um, you know, th- this year, particularly with everything being so much later, um, my concern, I, I guess, is that things like peas, because they are going in so much later, that two weeks later, that maybe we're going to zap up into summer with a, a very short spring. Um, what do you think the chances of that uh, might be? You know, when, when you get really hot very quickly, it kind of wrecks the pea crop.
1: Yes, it does, yes. Um, And that is a definite concern with having such a long winter that it is just going to transition very quickly to 70, 80-degree temperatures. Everything's going to burst at once, be in flower for a couple weeks, and then be done, and then we're right into summer. Uh, So with keeping that in mind, you might want to look at pea varieties that mature very quickly. Uh, Some of the dwarf varieties, uh, the sugar ands, for example, or sugar sprints, some of those sugar snap-type varieties. They're shorter, they flower, they, they mature a little bit faster than some of the taller older varieties like the traditional sugar snap or the tall um, alderman tall telephone uh, pea, the English pea. Uh, those may take longer to mature. The other thing you can do with peas of course is grow some of the snow peas or the flat potted peas. And those are nice because you don't have to wait for them to fill out. And a lot of times when we get that heat, that really intense heat early in the season when your peas are trying to ripen, uh, they won't ripen properly or they won't fill out very well because of the heat. But if you're growing a snow pea, you're really not worried about that because you're you're really growing it just for the pod, the edible pod itself. Uh, so that's a, another alternative if you're really concerned about getting a, your pea crop in before the, the heat of the summer hits. Then, of course, if you want to grow some of those longer season ones, you can always do those on the other side of the season, planting them, say, in July or early August, depending on where you are and having a fall crop of those where you can have more likelihood of success because the fall will tend to be cooler and a little bit longer into the
2: season.
0: Yeah, and actually one thing I'm trying uh, this year um, is uh, growing a few in containers, which I was able to keep indoors and only this week have taken them outside and one one of them actually is called peas in a pot um which is bred for containers and is supposed to produce um good-sized peas which should should be quite quite a novelty for me um you know obviously they, they were started so much earlier and i think those actually might be successful this year
1: wow well i'd love to hear about those i have not tried growing peas in a pot but it uh, sounds like a great idea for a small space garden or one worried about the, the weather.
0: Yes, and, you know, it was just something I think that I, I figured, well, I'm tired of waiting for spring. I <laughs> <And Yeah. laughs> just, just threw some into a pot and, you know, eureka. They're, they're now about three, four inches tall. So we'll see how that one goes. Right.
1: Yeah, I and think the you... nice thing also about peas is that, you know, you don't have to necessarily just eat the peas. Uh, the tendrils are very tasty. And there are now varieties that are on the market for market gardeners. Uh, Where they grow uh, peas just for the tendrils, which are those shoots, you know, the the tips of them, the four inches or so, four to six inch tips. Um, They're very tasty. They have a light pea flavor to them. They're great in sautes and stir fries and throwing some on a salad, too. Uh, So even if you get hit by a, a real hot spell, say in June, before your peas are maturing, you can still salvage some crop by just snipping some of those tips.
0: Oh, that, that would be a great idea, you know, yeah. particularly, you know, if, if things do get um, so, so hot. And I, I know some of them, are more, would that be more the, um, rather than the, the dwarf mountain ones, that would be better on the, the ones that grow quite tall, right?
1: Yes, I, I think the ones that grow tall will probably be uh, the best ones to do that too. And of course, if, if you are lucky enough to avoid some of that hot weather, you can still get your pea crop and get the tendrils too. You can do both of them. Um, the pea is strong enough to support both of those types of
0: growth. And, of course, doing ones that that are early, mid, and and late season possibly helps a little as well. Is there a way maybe to protect them if we do have that really hot transition? Is there there a way maybe of protecting them from um, the heat a little bit?
1: Well, if you are really uh, diligent about it and uh, getting very almost anal, I would guess you'd say, you could put up some kind of shade netting, especially from the hot afternoon sun. Now, that's really where you get a lot of that heat buildup is in the afternoon. So putting it on the west side of your pea patch so you get some shade on those peas in the afternoon might keep them a little cooler. Of course, mulching on the soil and keeping them well watered will help keep the whole atmosphere around them cool as well.
0: Yeah, and I, because I, I think you know, fresh peas and things, uh, they, there is really nothing quite like them. Um, and I think you're right. If you take uh, different varieties of peas, and some of them are quite colourful as well. We'd, yes. we'd,
1: yeah, I uh, grow one. I grow one uh, called Golden Sweet, which is an heirloom from India, and it's one of those flat potted ones that I mentioned uh, earlier. But what's beautiful about it is it grows up maybe about four feet tall. It has pink-colored flowers as opposed to the white flowers you normally see on peas. And the pea pods themselves are golden-colored, Ooh. and they stay golden even after you cook them. So uh, it's nice to have a mix of some golden and green peas in the same little stir-fry. Oh, and wow. there's a new one out called Shiraz, S-H-I-R-A-Z, that's a purple-potted one, similar to Golden Sweet, but a purple-potted uh, pea uh, that again kind of stretches our imagination as far as the color of peas and what what's possible
0: oh wow that that would that would be fun but you know we need to go for our first commercial break here um but everyone will be back talking more with charlie nardozzi and when we come back we'll talk about some of the varieties that are suited to the northeast america's homegrown veggies we'll be back in just a moment
3: quick steaks. that's Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
2: When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. This is
1: AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at America's Homegrown Veggies. And if you miss any shows, you can find them on americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and Stitchers. This morning, we are talking to Charles Nardozzi, a horticulturalist, garden coach, uh, writer from the state of Vermont. And Charlie, we talked about the climate and the season a little bit. So let's talk about some of the edible plants, um, particularly which are the seasonal um, annuals, and I would imagine that um, watermelons and things like that would be a problem for you guys, but what about peppers and things? Is the season hot enough and long enough for those?
1: Um, Actually, it is. Even in Vermont, uh, we get very nice crops of peppers and tomatoes and even eggplants. Again, it just kind of goes back to getting the right varieties and then using a few little tips and tricks to make sure they mature on time. So for peppers, for example, I've experimented over the years with lots of different varieties to find the ones that will actually turn red the quickest because, as you know, you know, a mature green pepper is nice, but if you really want to get that nice pepper flavor, that sweetness of the pepper, it's great to be able to turn them to a nice mature red color. Um, a lot of them now will actually turn to a yellow color or a brown color or a pink color or purple, but often red is the final color where they get the most intense flavor. And there's a variety that I've been growing for a number of years uh, that is an Italian um, banana-shaped one, um, similar to the sweet banana pepper or the, um, the Corno de Toro, the bull's horn pepper. This one is a hybrid called Carmen, and Carmen is a variety that I found is very productive. I get 10 to 15 peppers per plant, large ones, seven, eight inches long, and they're very quick to turn red. In fact, they'll be red and ready to eat in August in my garden. And sometimes I have so many peppers, I don't know what to do with them all. So I've uh, made roasted peppers and canned them. I've frozen them. I've tried all kinds of different (laughs) things uh, to make sure I can have that pepper flavor right through the winter.
0: Oh, And that sounds sounds a wonderful one to to grow. Um, But, uh, you know, I I guess people have to start them indoors um, to, to re- really get them boosted and, and things, is that a little more problematic in the north because by the time you've got them out, um, it's maybe a little, they're a little on the leggy side or do you find that with the longer day length that, that it's compensated for that way?
1: Well, if you, if you are going to start them indoors, and I encourage people to do that, especially with a lot of these uh, unusual varieties of tomatoes and peppers, for example, uh, you're not going to necessarily find them in a local garden center. So starting them from seed indoors is a great way to, to trial them. And I always do it under grow lights. Uh, you know, trying to put them indoors on, in a sunny southern window may look like you're getting a lot of light on them, but it really is not enough for them to grow strong and stay short and stocky, which is really what you want your transplants to look like. So having peppers under grow lights, keeping the grow lights down close to the top of the pepper, especially once it germinates maybe a few inches above the top of it, Uh, keeping it, of course, watered and fertilized, and then moving that grow light up as the plant grows. I've had good success keeping them pretty short and stocky so that by the time it's time to put them into the garden in in mid-May in my climate, um, they're looking like pretty nice transplants, and they don't really skip a beat as they start growing into the warmer days of June and July.
0: And other varieties, maybe that you have to pick, not necessarily uh, because of the cooler summers, or you know, if you if you get cooler summers, uh, but also the the longer day is is that an issue for some plants? Whereas if you go further south, uh, lat- latitude wise, uh, we get the shorter summer days.
1: Yeah, it's uh, what ends up happening up here in Vermont is, as, you, as you go further north is that you get this very intense growth period that happens. So things will start later and they'll start growing, but because the days are so long, especially when you get into June and early July, um, you have an extended period of growth for these plants. And so they really catch up. So I often, this time of year, would look even further just a little south of me down into Connecticut and see how far behind we are up here in Vermont. But after a month or so, um, I could go back down there and see that we've really kind of caught up with everyone else as far as the growth rate of the plants. Uh, so, because we are further north, things are much more concentrated and you get a longer growing period, but it's a much shorter period of time when that happens. Uh, but you do have enough time to mature some of these warm season crops still.
3: And would that be
0: something maybe that, uh, particularly if you're looking at different catalogs and things, um, is it a problem maybe for so, some of the things like um, maybe onions or, or something like that, where you get short day lengths and long day lengths? Um, do you have to be careful that you pick the right one?
1: Yes, certainly you do, Um, especially with onions because, as you mentioned, there are short-day and long-day onions. Uh, You don't want to try to grow a Vidalia onion, for example, up in Vermont because that's a short-day onion that grows in the south. Usually it's a a latitude starting somewhere around Washington, D.C. and going all the way across to San Francisco area. Anything south of that is considered a short-day area, and and then you'll grow short-day onions like the Texas Granos and the Vidalias. Anything north of that, you want to grow the long-day onions. And the difference is the short-day onions you actually plant in the fall, and they go through the winter, and they, they form their bulbs with the shorter days of uh, early spring. So you're harvesting those uh, probably late spring, early summer. The long-day onions that we grow further north are ones you plant in the spring, and the, the plant grows, and then they form their bulbs in response to the longer days that happen in June, and then you're harvesting in, in July and August. So you want to make sure you get the right onion variety for your area. Now, to confuse it, which a lot of the breeders <laughs> often do, there are now what we call day-neutral varieties, and these are varieties, uh, such as candy is one of them, that doesn't really matter if it's a short day, long day. It's still mature, so you can grow those up here in the north as well as in the south.
0: And does that affect any other crops? Uh, is it just the, the onion that, that that affects?
1: Yeah, the onion is really the primary one that's affected by the long days and short days. Uh, most other crops, as you mentioned at the beginning of the show, are annual, so uh, they really just respond to more of the, the temperatures and, and the light levels, uh, more so than the actual day length.
0: And uh, so, so let's talk about maybe some of the perennial ones, like like strawberries and rhubarb. Um, are they pretty good up the, up in the cooler regions? I know we grow them a lot in England, which is not renowned for its hot temperatures.
1: Yes, they do very well up here, strawberries in particular – uh, they do very well with our climate. The only problem you sometimes get with strawberries in Vermont is you get a, a late spring frost because they are one of the, the first fruits to actually start flowering. Uh, you sometimes will get a chilly night, and if those flowers are open, they're very sensitive to cold temperatures. It doesn't even have to go below freezing. They'll get a little zapped by those cold temperatures. Uh, that's why commercial strawberry farmers often have irrigation systems set up, and if it's the potential for the temperatures to get around freezing at night, and the flowers are open, they will actually turn the water on all night long. And as that water drops on the flowers and on the plants, it forms into ice from the cold temperatures. And just through the nature of water, when uh, water goes from a liquid to a solid, it actually releases heat. So it will protect those flowers and keep them just warm enough so that they won't get destroyed and they'll be able to get a crop. So that's really one of the, the only real big issues with the climate in strawberries, but they otherwise grow really well here. And you have not only the June-bearing strawberries, the early ones, but there are now day-neutral varieties, similar to what I was mentioning with the onions, where these, you grow them, you plant them in the spring, and you can actually harvest them the first year. And then in subsequent years, they will produce their crops from June till September pretty continuously, just continually keep more and more strawberries. Uh, so it's a nice thing to have for someone who wants to extend their strawberry season and also grow them in a small space.
0: And and so with with those, um, I I guess if if you do get a frost uh, late, it it wouldn't really matter too much with the ones that are day day neutral because they just catch up again.
1: Would that be right? Yes. So you might lose those flowers initially, uh, but they will certainly send out more flowers, and so you will get a nice crop.
0: And and you mentioned uh, water being used in commercial crops. Um, Would would maybe just a floating row cover or something like that help protect uh, the, the, the late spring crops?
1: Yes, that's actually a very good uh, way to protect them from frost in the spring or the fall if you're growing some crops in the fall. Uh, often a floating row cover can protect the the plants down to temperatures as low as about 28 degrees. So. Um, even if it gets really cold, you'll be able to protect them and allow them to still fruit and, and flower.
0: Yeah, and you know, and I think most people think about that more in the fall, where that first frost arrives. But they are quite useful. I think even can, can you use towels and things like that if you haven't got a um, a particular cloth that you that you would use? Would towels work, or would yeah. they be too any, heavy? Yeah, any
1: kind of structure, any kind of material that will actually uh, provide a barrier, because often the frost is, is a very light frost, or it's just barely below freezing it's not enough to really kind of uh, kill the plant if it has some kind of tarp over it or some kind of cloth. The thing, if you can, is to somehow make it so that there's an airspace between the plants and the material. So you have a little, the, 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 the material that's sitting right on the plants. Uh, and that will provide a little more insulation than if you had the floating row cover or the tarp or the cloth or the towel sitting right on top of the plant.
0: And I, I think there are some things, particularly like like rhubarb, um, that works very well with with strawberries. They don't do as well in the south. Do you, do you know how far south that can be successful, where, where it needs that cold winter? And it can go, from, to my knowledge, all the way up, up through Canada.
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, certainly. It can go. It, it likes the cool temperatures and it needs that cold winter. There are a number of, of fruits and, and, veg, and some perennial vegetables that are like that that won't do so well into the south. So I would guess you could probably try to grow rhubarb down into maybe the Carolinas, especially in the, the mountains of the Carolinas. It uh, probably get cold enough in the winter for them. But as you get into the coastal plain areas and then further south towards uh, Georgia and Florida, it, it just gets too hot in the summer and not cold enough in the winter. And a lot of fruits are, are like that. Um, that's why you have to be careful sometimes with the varieties. If you're in a warm climate trying to grow apples, for example, you want to get ones that we, what we call have low chill period. If you're living in uh, Southern California or Texas or places like that and you're trying to grow an apple, you want to get varieties that don't require a lot of cool temperatures in the winter in order for them to grow flower and fruit. Um, up here in the north, it's not a problem because they're kind of adapted to this uh, weather. But in the south, that can be sometimes an issue with a lot of fruits.
0: Um, and conversely, though, would you have to make sure that you don't get um, the low chill varieties if you were, for instance, doing an apple?
1: right so yes you also have to watch and see is this variety one that's adapted to your area and uh, you don't want to try to grow a low chill variety in vermont it, it just wouldn't do well
0: yeah and you know i and i think think when people get confused with um with that that type of thing you know it's um it really does make a difference when you get the right one um say with with um, french tarragon is another one that really does need uh, a certain amount of chill
1: Yeah, and you'll often see that they just don't come back that strongly the next year. Uh, So getting the right varieties is always a good thing to do, and and I always like to look at regional companies, whether it be regional seed companies for vegetables that have trial grounds or regional fruit companies to just see what varieties they're offering for your area. And those are usually, these are the professionals, so they kind of know which ones will perform the best for this climate.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's an excellent idea, going around different farms to see which varieties they they are using um, and and which apples uh, they're making the cider from. Uh, And farms are always fun to to visit. But, you know, we need to take another quick commercial break here. But I want to remind everyone, you're listening to America's Homegrown Veggies. And when we come back, we'll be uh, talking with Charlie Nardozzi about some of, maybe integrating some of these plants into a good landscape. We will be Right back.
3: Quick stakes. That's. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like.
2: When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs, ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office.
1: This is America's
3: WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.
0: You're back listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey. And this morning, we are in the cool but beautiful state of Vermont with Charlie Nardozzi. And Charlie, we talked about some of the things that you can grow in those cooler zones. So let's uh, turn to putting them into the landscape. Um, landscapes have three elements, shrubs and trees, perennials and an- uh, annuals. So let's start with the shrubs and trees. Um what type of thing maybe is one of the the best type... Uh, may, maybe that people would uh, maybe do an edible choice over a, a regular shade tree.
1: Well, for, uh, you know, for shade trees... Well, for trees in general, I guess we want to back up a little bit. It's really nice to, first of all, think about what the usage of the tree would be in your yard. You know, we so often get seduced by a beautiful tree in someone else's yard, but don't often think about, well, what am I going to be doing with it in my yard? Is it going to be a shade tree, for example, or is it just going to be a beautiful ornamental tree? And am I, am I going to try to grow things underneath it and integrate it into other gardens, or is it going to be a standalone tree? Uh, is it going to be a tree that's going to be with a bunch of other trees to kind of form a little grove of trees? So kind of thinking about the usage of those plants in the landscape before you go out and start selecting plants is usually the best thing to do. And with edible landscaping or foodscaping, as I often call it, too, uh, the nice thing about that is that you're substituting uh, food-producing trees and shrubs for ones that normally would just be beautiful to look at. So you're, you're still getting an attractive tree with nice flowers and beautiful foliage and a nice form to it, but you're also adding that element of having some, something edible that comes from it. So for a shade tree, for example, you might want to take a look at um, apple trees, which are very ubiquitous around New England. And you'll often see that there's a lot of dwarf and semi-dwarf trees that are sold on the market now because people have small spaces and, and they need trees that will fit into their space and not get overgrown. But if you have uh, the room for it and you need a shade tree, you can go with something that's more of a standard size tree, and this will get pretty big. It'll provide the shade you're looking for, and, of course, it will give you the fruit that will be an extra bonus.
0: Yeah, and you know, and I think when when you when you think about um, edible landscaping, particularly um, shade, shade is very important. But on the shrub side, um, I love elderberries, um, mm. which which I, and, and they've got some ornamental ones. And I think that's something else that people have to be a little careful of—that they're getting ones that actually fruit rather than the ornamental ones, just because they they find they're familiar with the name.
1: Yes, and that's true. Elderberries is a good example of that because the traditional one, it's a native plant uh, to the Northeast, Uh, so the traditional one has actually been bred in two different directions. So some of them have been bred for higher fruit production because elderberries make delicious fruit for juices and wines and jams and jellies. Uh, It's just a really uh, scrumptious taste and flavor. And so there are varieties of those, such as nova and atoms, which produce big berries. So you get more fruit production per, per shrub than you would normally get from the wild ones. And then the breeders have gone the other direction with the Sambucus or the elderberry and have created those that are more ornamental, like you are referring to, like the black lace, for example. And these are beautiful uh, shrubs that have the black lace has black-colored foliage and actually is a great alternative to the Japanese maple if you're growing somewhere where it's a little too cold for them to survive. Um, But the fruiting is not as good. Uh, You get some fruit for sure, but it's certainly not as good as some of those other varieties. So kind of going back again to that idea of what's the role of this plant in the landscape. Are you really wanting to get a lot of fruit out of your elderberries? You should have some of those uh, heavy fruiting ones. Or are you putting it in a place that really is important that it looks beautiful in your landscape? And then you might want to go with the more ornamental varieties.
0: And and I've noticed that the deer also, like uh, my my elderberry plants, um, I'm not quite sure uh, how to protect them because they do get quite large.
1: Yes, they can get uh, very large, a nice vase shape to them. Uh, the de- and the deer do love them, <laughs> for sure. Uh, so trying to do any kind of deer control in your landscape is always a, a challenge, especially in our region where deer seem to be everywhere. Uh, fences, of course, are the best thing to use for deer. If you can, fence an area out or individual plants, uh, sometimes that helps. I know a lot of people have had success and failures with repellent sprays. And the key that I found with repellent sprays is to get three or four that seem to work and rotate them. Don't use the same one over and over again. And what it does is kind of confuses the deer. So one time they come, they've got a scent or a taste of chili pepper. The next time they've got a scent or taste of a rotten egg. And the next time they've got a scent or taste of uh, blood meal. So having different uh, products that you're using with different active ingredients can kind of confuse them so they don't get used to it. And then they'll, once they get used to something, of course, they'll come back regardless of the smell <laughs> of the
0: taste. But, but I, th- I think elderberries are, are really, they, they are just beautiful shrubs. But let, let's go down to a, a little further. The blueberry, which is often touted as being a three-season shrub, and it, it truly is a beautiful shrub, along with um, there are some now some smaller container ones. That, to me, is a no-brainer in a landscape.
1: Yeah, it's a real easy shrub to grow and this is a nice one to do in an edible landscape as a replacement for some of your foundation plants. And foundation plants of course are the ones that are growing along your foundation or your house. Uh, so often you'll see in our region the forsythia, the lilacs, the ewes, um uh, the spireas, you know, a lot of these common ornamental plants in there. And it's so easy just to take some of those out and replace them with something like a blueberry bush. Um, it'll look beautiful. It'll have the, the white flowers in the spring, the bell-shaped flowers, the beautiful, of course, blueberries in the summer. And it has a beautiful, uh, people often realize, a gorgeous fall foliage color, very bright red. And in fact, it's a great alternative to the burning bush, which has now been outlawed in some of the states in, in New England uh, because it, it can be an invasive species. Uh, so instead of growing burning bushes, the euonymus alata, uh, you can grow blueberries instead and get still get that fall color, but you have that beautiful shrub uh, for the berries too.
0: And how big does a typical blueberry bush get?
1: Well, it depends on the kind you grow. So the ones you'll see on blueberry farms, those are called high bush blueberries, and they'll get anywhere from five to six feet tall. So they're a pretty big shrub, and so, of course, when you're putting them along your house, you do have to uh, recognize that and also make sure you don't put them under a, near a, a low window or somewhere where they're going to be shading a view or a walkway as they mature. But you also have some other options, too. There are now varieties called half-high blueberries, and these grow anywhere from two to four feet tall. North blue, north sky, north country are some of the varieties that are available. And what's nice about these is that they will fit in those smaller spaces you might have around your house or in a bed um, or in a side yard area. Uh, They still, of course, require full sun to get your fruit, um, but they stay smaller and they're more manageable. And then if you really want to have blueberries everywhere, which, why not? <laughs> uh, you can do ground carrot cover blueberries, the low bush blueberries. These are the ones you'll often see in the, the rocky crags of Maine if you ever go up that way, uh, growing, creeping along the, the rocks, uh, producing those small, little, sweet, delicious tasting blueberries. Uh, they do really well in a uh, landscape as well. So, you've really got some choices there from a low bush all the way up to a high bush.
0: And and what about the ones now that uh, are in different colors? Um, I know you can get a a pink blueberry. Um, Are they as productive as the traditional blueberries?
1: Yes, there's one called pink lemonade that has, uh, instead of the fruits maturing to blue, they mature to a pink color. Um, I would think that they're they're productive, probably not as productive as the traditional highbush. Usually when you start messing around with uh, foliage color, getting variegation or fruit coloring, um, something usually has to give, and often it may be the vigor of the plant or the, the hardiness of the plant. So I have not grown pink lemonade, but from my understanding of it, it might not be as productive as some of the high bushes. It's more of a unique novelty.
0: Yeah, um, and so what about maybe um, perennials in a landscape that are edible? Um, besides the, the, the rhubarb and the strawberries, which we, we already covered, are there any other perennials that work well in a landscape as part of a landscape edible landscape?
1: Yes, in fact, um, asparagus is a really nice perennial to grow. And the way to grow asparagus in an edible landscape to save space and actually uh, make a beautiful landscape element is to grow it in a, a row, almost like a hedgerow, as a divining line, maybe between your yard and your neighbor's yard or between your yard and a, a shed or something. So that, of course, you grow your asparagus and it grows up and you've it for six weeks or so in the spring, but then you let it go to fern and let it grow up. And those ferns can be six, eight feet tall sometimes. Now often they will flop over when they get that tall just because they can't support themselves. But if you put a little fence along either side of them um, to keep them vertical, it creates a beautiful hedge that can stay there all season long and in fact turn kind of a golden color in the fall before you cut it down for winter. So a perennial like asparagus is long-lived, beautiful one in the landscape. Uh, Then of course, we could go on and on about the different shrubs that you can grow. Uh, that would be nice, edible landscaping fruiting shrubs, everything from gooseberries to currants, uh, which are two of my favorites because they're so low-maintenance and have delicious berries on them. That have multiple uses to them. Uh, we mentioned the elderberries. There's a, a new one that's getting a lot of press now called the honeyberry. Ooh. And the honeyberry is in the honeysuckle family. And it actually comes from Russia. It's hardy to minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. And it forms a nice shrub that's maybe four to six feet tall. And it produces these beautiful little blueberries that are more elongated than round. And they, well, the nice thing about them is that they produce the berries early in the season, two weeks earlier than strawberries. And they kind of have a, a blueberry, blackberry, um, I don't know if you've ever had amelanchia or the serviceberry that wild berry that often grows. Mm-hmm. It has that kind of wild flavor to it. Uh, kind of tasty, very low maintenance, and a nice one to mix into a hedge with other shrubs that you might be creating a little edible landscape with.
0: And, and I think mixing them all together um, would really make a, a, an interesting hedge, hedge line a, a, along a, a border of the house or something like that.
1: Yes, uh, along the border of a house, or a, as I was mentioning with the asparagus, as a Way to block a view or to kind of create a room in your yard, um, instead of using things like frasquitia or privet or some of the other traditional hedging plants, um, mixing in some different kinds of different heights of edible plants. So the amelanchier, the serviceberry, is a nice medium, the low side-growing tree uh, that could be a nice height addition to a, a hedge row. Then you could put some of the uh, viburnum berries are edible. The viburnum trilobum, the American cranberry bush, is a really nice one with red berries. Um, those will get up maybe 8 to 10 feet tall, and you can come all the way down to those currents that I was mentioning before that are maybe 3 or 4 feet tall. So mixing and matching some of those plants in there, as long as they have the same growing requirements. Uh, of course, with blueberries, as we mentioned before, uh, those um like an acidic soil, a pH below 5. So they're not going to be good companions for a lot of these other plants. They're going to need a little bit of their own space. But certainly a lot of these other shrubs I'm mentioning have similar growing conditions and requirements, so they can grow together in a hedgerow.
0: And, and presumably put in enough for the birds as well as yourself, um, because I think the birds really enjoy some, some of those, um, you know, particularly the, the blueberries and the, the, um, a lot of the, those, those gooseberry-type things. They, they do enjoy them as much as the humans
1: yeah and what's nice about a lot of those shrubs is that they're very prolific so even if you can't get out there every day to harvest them and the birds get some of them you're still going to get a nice crop
0: yeah and i I think particularly with the 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 softer fruit that the birds do have a tendency to to fight you for it
1: Um, (laughs) (laughs) there's always netting that's what i always say
0: oh yes yes particularly if it's a manageable one but I, i tend to like letting the birds have just a few Um, but you know we need to take our final commercial break here but come back everyone and listen to more about Charlie Nardozzi and where his books are and where he is appearing. We will be right back.
3: Quick Stakes
2: Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Cheryl Linker, host of the Master Gardener Hour on America's Web Radio, Saturday morning
0: at 11 o'clock. Join us as we keep things fun and interesting as we educate you in the
2: world of master gardening. When gardening is part of your life, it brings so much. Healthy eating, the freshest, most local produce, and playing in the dirt. At BonniePlants.com, you'll find all you need to succeed. When you grow Bonnie veggie and herb plants in beds or containers, you'll know where your food comes from. Homegrown veggies and herbs ready for cooking, eating, and enjoying. And you did it. So get growing with Bonnie Plants.
0: I hope you're enjoying America's homegrown veggie show this morning. We have been talking about growing in the Northeast with Charlie Nardozzi. And Charlie, you are a popular radio and TV star as well as a popular speaker. Um, So where do people find out about maybe where you're going to be speaking?
1: Well, probably the easiest way to keep track of me and where I am and what I'm doing is to go to my website. It's gardeningwithcharlie.com. And you'll see on the website there's uh, not only a lot of information about what I'm doing, but also a lot of gardening information, um, excerpts from my books, uh, a lot of my podcasts that uh, pe- that usually appear on uh, public radio. I have a number of those on there. And some videos I've done over the years when I used to work with the National Gardening Association and then and other places. So there's a lot of gardening information on the gardeningwithcharlie.com website. But there's also a section uh, called Where's Charlie? <laughs> and you can go down there, and I try to keep it up to date as much as I can, but you can see my speaking schedule um, right through into the fall. And uh, hopefully if you're listening in the northeast area, you might be able to join me in Syracuse, New York, for example, this weekend where I'm talking at the Men's Garden Club about edible landscaping, um, or in June when I'm talking down in Williamstown, Mass at the Williamstown Garden Club, or um, going out to Michigan in, in, towards the end of June. Um, to talk at the Michigan State Master Gardener Conference. So there's a number of different opportunities for you to find out where I'm going to be, and certainly I always encourage you to come by and say hi even if you can't stay for the talk because I love to talk with gardeners and hear what's going on with them.
0: Yes and I think there's an extensive list on, on your on your web page I mean it seems like you you do something pretty much every week it makes you wonder how 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 you managed to fit me in. <laughs>
1: uh, well I, I did <laughs> but it is a busy time of year for sure.
0: Yes um, but you've got a co- couple of books out uh, one's on urban growing um, and one's on gardening in the northeast and um, what is the difference between those apart? apart? apart from the obvious in the title.
1: So uh, the Northeast one is primarily about fruit and vegetable gardening, and it's really geared towards uh, New York, New Jersey, and all of New England, that region, uh, because I'm I'm really focused on what are the varieties that do well here, what about the soil and the weather conditions, what kinds of things you need to consider uh, for growing in these conditions and in this climate. And so uh, that's a real nice one for folks who are listening in those areas. Uh, it's kind of a be- beginner, intermediate guide. You know, it's not something that's going to be the expert guide to uh, vegetable gardening, but certainly for someone who's just starting out or a novice who is really looking to get a head start and get going and, and get off in the right direction, it's a nice book to try. And, of course, these are on my GardeningWithCharlie.com website. Uh, the Urban Gardening book is part of the Dummies series, and I've been writing for them for a while. Uh, my Vegetable Gardening for Dummies book is in the second edition. That's been out for a number of years. And the Urban Gardening for Dummies I did last year, and that one is very geared towards not just edible gardening but ornamental gardening too, but specifically for people living in cities. So uh, cities, small space areas. Even It doesn't have to be New York City. It could be a, a town that's... Uh, has a kind of an urban area to it, and you're living in there. So you have small spaces, you're dealing with air pollution, you're dealing with concrete, you're dealing with light levels changing, you're dealing with all kinds of those factors that are happening in urban areas, and how do you garden in that kind of setting? How do you grow your flowers, your trees, your shrubs, your vegetables, your fruits? So we go through all of those things, talking about the urban areas and how to grow those types of plants in there to be successful as an urban gardener.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think I think particularly in the urban settings, there are so many challenges. Um, but can, can these books be purchased direct on your website, or do we have to go to a bookstore or the online equivalent?
1: Well, you certainly can go to a bookstore. They should be available. But, yes, you can go right to my website, and you can see uh, uh, that section, Where's Charlie? Right next to that is a section called Writing. And in that Writing section, we'll have all these books, and there's, of course, a convenient link that will take you to a place where you can actually buy them.
0: And, and if they wanted a, a signed copy, they, they would go to one of your um, your talks, right?
1: Yes, if they want to come to one of my talks, I'm happy to sign a copy. Even if you bought it somewhere else, just bring the book and I'm happy to sign it for you.
0: And, and if they wanted maybe to invite you to give a talk to one of their events, um, is there a way on the, the website that they can contact you?
1: Uh, yes, there is. There's a, a tab that says Hire Charlie, and you can go there. You can see a little video about me uh, talking and talking about talking, you might say, <laughs> about my philosophy about doing uh, speeches and, and talks at uh, garden clubs and other places. So you can hire me as a garden speaker or as a garden coach. Um, this tends to be more just in the Vermont area where I live, where people will hire me to come out to the yard and, and walk through the yard with them and talk about what they should plant here and what they do there. And a lot of it becomes more just kind of helping people prioritize where they're going to put their energies and how they're going to make a, their yard into the dream landscape that they want, taking it step by step. So you just fill out the information form there and uh, send it to me, and I'll be back in touch with you.
0: And, and I know that, um, you know, if, if people obviously con- contacted you, do you go, um, you said Michigan, uh, can you go pretty much anywhere um, that people want?
1: Oh yes, I go all over the place. I've spoken from Florida at Boca Grande down there, uh, Fort Myers area, all the way up to Seattle, Washington, um, Idaho, Arizona. I've I pretty much can speak anywhere, you know, I'm I'm a general horticulturist, meaning that I've had a lot of experience, even though I haven't lived in these places, a lot of experience working with other horticulturists and and master gardeners, so I have a sense of what grows well in those climates, and a lot of the things I can talk about, especially if you're talking about container gardening, for example, it's very transferable around the country, so um, yes, I am available to speak anywhere in this country.
0: Oh, wonderful! Uh, so long as the fee is is uh, arranged, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, of course. There is the fee. <laughs> yeah, um,
0: so so what, you mentioned gar- garden coaching. Um, that's something that has arrived fairly, uh, fairly recently. In do you you tell people and you advise people on their landscape. What about um, if they maybe inherited a landscape? Do you tell them how to maybe or help them with how to prune and some of the practicalities of aftercare of landscapes?
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, garden coaching is a relatively new thing, and what it is is it's kind of a hybrid between being a consultant and a designer and a landscaper. So what you do when you come in as a coach is that I don't come in and actually draw a whole landscape design for you and show you a whole uh, palette of things that you should be planting. On the opposite extreme, I also don't come in and actually do the work for you like a landscaper would. What a coach does is comes in and kind of works with you uh, to kind of decide what things need to be done in there. And I certainly will, will talk about different varieties and what to plant and how to plant them and all of that. Um, but I won't give you a whole full landscape design. It's more kind of problem solving. And on the other extreme, I won't actually landscape it, but I will show you how to do things. So I'll show you how to prune a lilac, for example, or how to plant a rose. So I often will work with people side by side and we'll kind of do it together and they'll get a sense of, oh, this is how I do it. And then they can do the rest of them. Maybe they're pruning uh, five lilacs that they have, and we do one of them together, and they'll do the other four on their own. So it's kind of a teaching moment, too, at the same time, uh, with the idea being that, I'll come in for one or two sessions and you get the information you need and you won't need me anymore. You'll be able to do it yourself.
0: So, so it enables the gardener to learn and, and be able to maintain things themselves, right?
1: Exactly. That's the whole point of being a garden coach.
0: <laughs> yes. And, I, I think that's a, and, and you do that, though, literally that, that involves a, 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 an on-site visit, right? You can't do that by, by video for somebody out of the area.
1: Well, you know, I haven't tried to do that out of the area by video, but I suppose it might be worth a try with Skype and other ways to communicate now. Um, but yes, right now it is more of an on-site uh, coaching experience.
0: And, and they use the same contact form on the web page to uh, approach you about maybe um, do, doing the garden coaching as they would for doing speaking.
1: Yes, you just check off which one you want to do—the garden speaking or the garden coaching.
0: Wonderful, um, and you know, and, and I think think when people are so flexible, um, it, it does make make things in, interesting. You know, and, and there are so many. Com- I think pruning is probably the biggest fuddling thing out there for people, and I don't know why, but pruning seems to just. It, people don't don't like it. They're scared of it.
1: They're scared of it. They're, they're afraid of hurting their plant. And they have to realize that most plants are very resilient. And you can really do a bad job pruning and still the plant will survive and it will be okay. So <laughs> As the I power often company to, often prunes. I teach improve. classes on pruning, it's <laughs> one of the things you'll see in my uh, speaking schedule. And often that's one of the things I often emphasize with people is you, most people are too timid about pruning. They need to be a little more bold about taking branches off or taking a... a, a, a uh, shoot off here and there and you'll be able to kind of trust your own instinct as far as what's going on with that plant.
0: Yeah, and you know I, I often say say with pruning, it's it's a plant, not a souffle
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good point
0: You know, you can make it ugly um, but, but there's a good chance and you can make it not flower, but there's a good chance you won't kill it <laughs>
3: Right, right yeah.
0: but, uh, but you know, we've just got a, another minute or two uh, left uh-huh. in the show so if if, if somebody maybe was new to the northeast, what are the what would you say would be the the first three things that they should know before they actually get started on an edible landscape or put putting some edibles in the in the land?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, if you're new to the, the northeast and the growing climate here, uh, the first thing, of course, is the old axiom: get the right plant for the right location. Make sure when you're looking at your tree or shrub or whatever it is you're going to plant. Uh, you find one that's going to ultimately be the right size for that location because so often you see this in landscapes where people put the wrong plant in and they end up trying to prune it and it looks really bad. looks like a little geometric shape and not really like a shrub or a tree any longer. So get the right plant size-wise that will fit in your landscape and then get the right one variety-wise that will be hardy for your area. You know, we stretch in the northeast from hardy to zone 7 all the way up to hardy to zone 3. So it's a a wide swath of land and and different conditions here. So get one that's hardy for the area. I often lean people towards, especially with fruits, uh, disease and insect-resistant varieties, if they can find those. That will save a lot of hassle with you down the road as far as taking care of these plants. So getting the right uh, size plant, getting the right variety plant, and then getting something you really like. I mean, that might sound too obvious, but uh, often people think, well, what's the easiest thing to grow? I'll grow that. But if you don't really like growing beans, for example, <laughs> then don't grow beans. So get stuff that you and your family and your friends will really enjoy eating and maybe some specialty crops, some ethnic crops. Experiment a little bit and have some fun with it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's great, great advice. And I, that could walk, that's really is for new gardeners almost anywhere. And that get the right plant and read the tag. I always add add yeah. to that, but particularly with shrubs and trees. If you read the tag to tell it how how tall and how wide it's going to be, it really does help.
1: It, it makes a big difference, yeah.
0: Yes, and of course that will also tell you what sun um, requirements um, your your plant should have. Right, um,
1: you always do want to put your plant in the best situation for them to succeed, kind of like your kids, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, if, if a plant needs full sun, make sure you get a lot of sun on there. If it needs really well-drained soil, make sure you have very good well-drained soil. If you, if you get all those things right at the beginning, you'll have less chance of... of problems happening down the road with insects, with diseases, with nutritional deficiencies, with poor growth and all those things.
0: Yeah, well, you know but we're, we're right at the, the end of the, the show here, um, but I want to thank everyone for listening to America's Homegrown Veggie Show this morning Thank you Charlie, you've been a great guest, I would imagine you give wonderful um, presentations as well. Um, well Thank you
1: very much, it's been a pleasure to be on.
0: Oh yes, and everyone we will be back next week with another show talking all about growing veggies, have a Good gardening week everyone and join me back here next saturday
1: this is americaswebradio.com the best in chat radio designed just for you